I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, factories often get a bad rap, but they've changed just about every part of our lives. I take a life-saving drug that's made in the factory. If that factory did not produce that drug, I would literally not be here. Then we're obsessed with social media because we're obsessed with ourselves. It isn't that Twitter and, and selfie cameras that are causing these things. It's that people are choosing to use these things. I mean, Silicon Valley threw up dozens of ideas a day, you could say, easily. It's the people that choose which ones work. Plus, maybe perfection is overrated. I don't get writer's block the first time round because I'm not trying to aim for perfection. I'm just aiming to get something down. And I do this in research with a colleague of mine as well. We often say to ourselves, we're just going to do something, anything, doesn't matter. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If a visitor from 1600, let's say Shakespeare, were to travel to your house, there'd be a lot of things that might surprise him. TV, the internet, the dishwasher. But what might be most surprising and most magical is that even if you're not the richest person in your area, you've probably got a lot of stuff. And that stuff seems so perfectly formed. And mostly, it works quite well. The reason that you've got all that stuff can basically be summed up in one word, factories. In the course of human history, factories are pretty new, but they've changed our lives in ways we tend to forget about. One thing they've done is allowed regular people to afford all sorts of fancy stuff, like microwaves and cars. They've also reshaped America, and increasingly, our politics and our sense of who we are. Now, a world without them seems almost unimaginable. I take a life-saving drug that's made in the factory. If that factory did not produce that drug, I would literally not be here. Joshua Freeman is the author of Behemoth, a history of the factory and the making of the modern world. And, you know, I have to say it made me very alert to the dangers of chaos, you know, because from, you know, literally hundreds of millions of people It's that immediate a connection. Freeman is a distinguished professor of history at Queens College in New York, and he says factories revolutionized America. And then fairly quickly, many of them left us. Now political candidates promise to bring them back, though it's not clear whether that promise can be kept. In 1960, 24% of all workers worked in manufacturing. Today, 8%. And I think people would be shocked to think that that change would happen. If the average person on the street in 1960 could not have foreseen the decline of the American factory, lots of average people on the street in 2018 remember, or at least imagine, the America of 1960. You know, I think you could argue that this kind of golden age of America that people are often very nostalgic for, you know, from the, let's say, the end of World War II up through the late 1970s, you know, in part rested on the combination of the large factory and unionization. And I think, you know, a lot of the rhetoric, particularly coming from uh, President Trump, harks back to that. You know, when he says make America great again, that's part of the image in people's minds. 
increasing tariffs on foreign goods, which President Trump has actually advocated for decades, is part of an effort to deliver on a promise, a promise to reopen some of those closed plants that dot our country. In the past, I've heard technology pioneers say that we're glamorizing factory jobs now that they're gone. They were too hard on people's bodies. They were repetitive. Many factory workers dreamed that their kids would get better jobs, which is all to say that factories are a lightning rod. And Joshua Freeman acknowledges it's been like that for 300 years. The system emerges and emerges quite quickly around 300 years ago. It sort of pops into existence. And there are just enormous efficiencies associated with the factory, with the coordination of production, the scale of production, and the application of external, non-human power to production. And you put those things together, and very rapidly you have this new model of how to make stuff. The first real factory, he says, was a silk factory started in 1721 in England. And as factories spread, tourists started showing up, like Robinson Crusoe author Daniel Defoe and Charles Dickens, and the great romantic poet William Blake. But Blake was not super impressed. He called factories dark satanic mills, partially because they polluted the environment. But there were other problems, too. Who were the workers in these early factories? The silk mills, the textile mills, many of them were children. And, and, and I'm not talking about, you know, 17-year-olds. I'm talking about 5-year-olds and 8-year-olds. And their parents thought it was okay to send 5-year-olds to go work in factories? Well, sometimes it didn't have anything to do with their parents. They, they were, came from workhouses. They were abandoned kids. They were orphans. And the local governments that ran these workhouses contracted with these factories for these children to be – they were called apprentices, but they weren't being taught anything. They were just cheap labor. Um, in other cases, parents were desperate. And, and a lot of defenders of the factory said, yeah, child labor is really bad. Mm-hmm. But child starvation is even worse. When factories made the leap to America, there were improvements in standardization and in scale. Factories changed the young country. Lots of teenage and 20-something women streamed out of farm country and went into cities for what they thought was an amazing new opportunity. And sometimes factory owners were really committed to the education and enrichment of their workers. Other times, though, as the author Herman Melville discovered, factories were dystopian places for these women. He goes visits this papermaking plant, which, by the way, is still there. I've been there. It's in Dalton, Massachusetts. Really? It's still still there? Okay. Okay. Still producing paper, amazingly enough. And he sees them as, you know, kind of ghostly, you know, wane figures. And, you know, he talks about how they're the extension of the machine. The machine controls them, not they controlling the machine. And he sees it, again, similar to Blake, as, as, as almost devilish, satanic, you know, a kind of underworld. Pretty soon, factories were not the destination of choice for young American women. And by the mid-1800s, the massive buildings that powered America's economy turned to another source of cheap labor, immigrants, particularly Irish immigrants. Joshua Freeman says the country built by our founding fathers, this rural, agrarian place, it had been supplanted by a new vision. You know, the great example I use in the book is the 1876 Centennial Exhibition. This was like a kind of huge World's Fair type deal in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. to celebrate 100 years in the United States, you know. 
And what's the centerpiece of it? A giant steam engine. You know, it's huh. not the yeah. documents or it's not, you know, George Washington's, you know, wooden teeth. It's it's a steam <laughs> engine, right? It's a redefinition. And, you know, President Grant comes and he flips the switch and the steam engine starts and powers all this, you know, factory equipment that's there. So the country comes to embrace this as the basis of its national greatness. But mm-hmm. that's not right away. That's a debate. How quickly did cities like Pittsburgh or uh, Lowell, Massachusetts, or later on Detroit, how quickly did they start to think about their environment and the things, like in order to make things in factories, very often you have byproducts, waste products, things you then need to get rid of. How quickly did they realize like, Maybe our water supply isn't as great as it used to be, or maybe our air quality isn't so great. How'd that, how quickly did that happen? Uh, usually not quickly at all. Okay. And in fact, okay. smoke was often seen as a sign of prosperity. Hmm. You know, um, yeah. If there's smoke coming out, we're doing well. You right, know, in the case right. of Pittsburgh, it's not till the 1940s, you know, a century later that you begin to deal with that issue. I mean, there were the rare voices. Ralph Waldo Emerson was critical of Lowell, Massachusetts because they actually – bought up land to get more water into the river that powered those mills. And, you know, he thought this was kind of this arrogant imposition on, on nature. But he was a rare voice. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of sense that there was infinite resources and, you know, uh, and there's a kind of Promethean impulse behind this. You know, we are the masters of all of this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea of, like, messing up the environment was really not – uh, something that people pay attention to in, mm-hmm. until extremely recently. And, uh, of course, we're living with the consequences. Mm-hmm. Another environmental question, but but a very different kind. The 1800s, we know we're talking about late 1700s, 1800s is this mm. time of huge factories, huge proliferation of factories. They're changing the world. It was also a time of major colonial powers. And I wonder... How much, you know, on the way into factories, right, you need raw ingredients. And I wonder how much factories drove, let's say, foreign policy because, like, there's a need to get the raw ingredients. Absolutely. Uh, I think you're on to something extraordinarily important, particularly in the case of England and Europe more than the case of the U.S. Hmm. You know, you can't grow cotton in Europe. It's just not suited, the temperature and the environment. So, to create a textile industry, you had to create sources of, of raw materials. And that often required using diplomatic, economic, and even military force hmm. to impose plantation regimes to grow this cotton. Look, this was one of the great reasons for the spread of American slavery, mm-hmm. which was to grow more cotton for primarily English textile mills, you know, which 90 percent of their cotton was coming from the Americas by, you know, the 1820s, 1830s. So there's a huge amount of global transformation and, frankly, global misery that's created in the process of supplying these factories with raw materials. Even today, you think of China, you know, which is going all over the world looking for rare earth uh, metals. Right, right. Which are so important for, you know, the creation of electronic components. You know, uh, they're investing in mining in Africa all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not traditional colonialism, but it has a lot of echoes of that system. Right, right, right. But why are they doing that raw ingredients? Like if you need to make cell phones, you're going to need different metals to do that. That's right. Right. You talk about a major figure of uh, the 20th century, probably the major figure that if anybody had to think about the factory in America, this is the guy they'd think of. 
Henry Ford. Obviously, he didn't invent factories. They'd been going strong for quite a while before he came on the scene. How did Henry Ford and how he kind of, in some sense, remade the Midwest, how did that change America? How did that change the factory? What did he do differently? Well, Ford's great innovation, you know, we describe in shorthand as the assembly line. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea here is that instead of having workers working individually and then sort of moving products from one workstation to another, you know, the workers stand still and the materials go past the workers who do very limited operations on it as it's in front of them and it goes on to the next person and you build a product that way. And this required extreme standardization of parts so that, you know, a crankshaft would fit into any engine block. And, and we take this for granted, but this was an extraordinarily difficult challenge. So this is a highly concentrated, highly integrated, enormously efficient system. And he's a, a proselytizer of it. You know, mm-hmm. today you can't get into most factories. You know, people don't want you. Ford welcomed journalists. He welcomed his rivals. He welcomed, you know, yeah, really? he was very proud of it. Okay. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, the system spread to other automakers and then to other lines of industry and, and overseas. So Ford became a kind of worldwide hero for this extreme efficiency that he introduced with the Model T. It's interesting, too, that you talk about this kind of new level of standardization because one of the things Ford also wanted was a kind of standardization of the workforce, too, to make sure, like, these people were truly American. Um, in some way, he had, he tried to assess that about his workers. What, what did he do and what did American mean to him? Well, this grew out of a practical problem. You know, they introduced the assembly line and workers hate it. Hmm. You know, you're standing all day twisting a few nuts or putting a tire onto right, a hub. Right. And they just start quitting in huge numbers. Huh. So they have to hire four times the number of workers they need in the factory in the first year of the assembly line. In other words, wow. they have 400 yeah. percent. So, you know, what do you do? So Ford comes up with uh, not just Ford, but Ford and, and the group around him uh, with the idea of both greatly increasing wages, but also making the increase in wages dependent upon workers adopting what Ford thought of as the habits of life necessary to be a good factory worker. You know, you couldn't drink. You had to be thrifty. You couldn't live <laughs> in sin. You know, if you were Russian, you couldn't take the Orthodox Christmas off because the factory was working. You know, and, and he actually created what he called a sociological department who went into people's homes to investigate if they met the criteria. So uh, the pay system was you got a basic uh, salary. That was kind of standard wages for Detroit. And then basically a, a double that only if you met these criteria. So Ford was a, a believer that there was the need for a new man for this new factory system. So it's not just the assembly line, but this notion of a new social system to accompany it huh. that, that Ford introduced and was highly influential and picked up by a lot of people who in many other ways were very different than Ford, you know, including later on the Soviet Union. Hmm. Um, so I've got to ask you about uh, the rise of unions and like the role that they played in changing these factories and in changing workers' lives. First of all, I wonder how unions got a foothold and, and how tricky it was to take on, like, big factory bosses. 
And then I know there have been uh, famous media images of uh, workers just stopping their machines to show that they have solidarity with unions. And there's a famous image in the movie Norma Ray, which is about uh, the unionization of a textile mill. And people just stop their machines in the middle of the workday. Did people actually do that kind of dramatic stuff um, right in front of management? Right. Well, when factories started, there were lots of efforts. Unions already existed for other kinds of workers to to unionize them. But when you begin to get these Ford-type factories, these really giant factories, they are very successful in defeating unionizing efforts until the 1930s. And then with the New Deal and the Depression, uh, you get a wave of successful organizing efforts. And this really takes this system, which had been very oppressive to workers, And once they begin to share the fruits of its productivity, you know, it kind of lays the basis for the great post-World War II prosperity. And the the key breakthrough happened at General Motors when workers not only stopped the machinery but refused to leave the factory. They had what was called a sit-down strike. They stayed and occupied the factories for almost a month, which gave them enormous bargaining power. So, you know, the ability to pull a switch and shut down a whole factory, you know, gave enormous power to workers. When I think about factories now, when a lot of people think about factories now, they think about companies like Foxconn Mm -hmm. that produce things like iPhones in China, these huge, huge factories. I remember uh, Foxconn putting in nets uh, in their dormitories so people would not commit suicide. They would not jump out the window. They would be caught by a net. Um, I remember a few years ago, one of the leaders of Foxconn said, we're going to try to bring in as many robots as we possibly can so we can take out as many people as we possibly can. What is the state of the factory now? And like, where does it go from here? Well, the largest factories in human history exist right now. And okay. in fact, they're making things like your sneakers and your cell phone. Okay. And some of these factories have, you know, 200 300,000 workers in a single factory complex. They're absolutely mind-boggling. In, is this like in a single building or it's a compound of buildings or what? It's a compound. Okay, so, for example, okay. the place I think you were referring to, which was called Foxconn City, yeah. uh, which was in Shenzhen, China, it was, you know, it took about an hour to walk across you know, the, the, the wow, property. It had many different gosh. buildings in it. But it was one factory complex. It had okay. dormitories. It had recreation facilities as well as production facilities. Mm-hmm. And there are factories that large which continue to be built. Uh, wow. Foxconn did introduce some robots, you know, in some factories. But it built factories that were even larger than that Foxconn city in the intervening years. So, you know, we globally are still at an all-time height of manufacturing. You know, globally, close to 30% of all workers work in manufacturing, and that's mostly factory work. Now, is that a peak, and are we going to start turning down? Possibly. A lot of people think that, and they think automation will lead to that. But we are not in a post-industrial world. Hmm. You know, we may be in a post-factory America, but we are not in a post-factory world. Joshua Freeman is the author of Behemoth, A History of the Factory and the Making of the Modern World. He's also a distinguished professor of history at Queens College. Joshua, thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. If you're wondering what Henry Ford's factory actually looked like, we've got a link to a photo essay that'll take you inside the first Ford factory. 
That is at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. A lot of people strive to be great at what they do, at their jobs, at being a parent, at being a friend, a spouse. And you will hear people from time to time admit, I'm a perfectionist or I've got to resist my perfectionist tendencies. Author Will Store argues those tendencies are not incidental. They are emblematic of our age. One of the definitions of perfectionism is it's people who are sensitive to signals of failure in the environment. So I began to wonder kind of what is it in the environment that's kind of causing us all to, you know, to feel like failures so much? And I guess that was the beginning of the journey, which it really becomes a sort of investigation into culture and the power of culture to kind of make us who we are. This is an age, Storr says, in which visions of the perfect body or life or personality or relationship, they loom large. And we often hold ourselves responsible for both the good luck that befalls us and the grand successes that almost inevitably elude us. Individualism is amazing, but it's also dangerous. I mean, I think it's important not to sacralize it and become kind of almost religious in our thinking about defending individualism. It's also really dangerous because on the one hand, it's saying, yes, you're an individual. You have all this potential. Go and just achieve your dreams and go for your life. You know, that's the that's the great American message. And it's certainly spread around the West. But the underside of that is if you don't succeed and let's face it, the far more common story for most people is failure after failure after failure. We know, we, we know the success is the exception. If you don't succeed and you don't become Beyonce and you don't become Michael Jordan, the individualism idea points to this idea that, that it's your fault. You didn't want it badly enough. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't reach for your dreams with sufficient vigor. And that's when the problems start. Store is the author of Selfie, How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. He says the problems range from eating disorders to depression to suicide. In America, the suicide rate has risen rapidly over the last couple of decades, and it now sits at a nearly 30-year high. And that is despite the massive use of antidepressants, which have skyrocketed in popularity since the early 1980s. One in 50 Americans took antidepressants in the early 80s. Now that number, one in 50, is closer to one in nine. In his book, Storr investigates the role of the self in culture and how it's changed over time and how our increasing drive towards perfectionism has also made us increasingly self-focused. Because if you want to achieve your dreams, you've got to understand exactly where you come up short. He believes this is a moment unlike any other, but it may not be that way for the reasons that you think. For a moment, though, let's pull back. Why do we have these striving tendencies in the first place? Why do we focus so much on ourselves rather than on the group? Storr says, you've got to go back to ancient Greece. Aristotle believed that all things in nature were on this kind of natural path towards perfection and human beings were part of that uh, thing. And, he, and he, you know, he argued that in order to achieve perfection, humans had to, had to exist in this ennobled state of self-love, which is just an extraordinarily modern thing to think. So you know, education and debate and reason become ways of achieving status in ancient Greece. What shaped this early individualism, some scholars argue, may have been something that was completely out of the Greeks' control, their landscape. 
there was a really interesting thing about the ecology of ancient Greece. So it, it, you couldn't be a farmer because the landscape is rocky and the, and the soil's very poor. Uh, so in order to get along and get ahead, you had to be a small business person. You had to make you know, dry animal hides or make olive oil or be a fisherman and go out and start trading with each other. So basically, you've got to be a hustler. And so from this kind of very individualistic landscape come all these individualistic ideas. But of course, landscapes vary. So you had Aristotle wandering around ancient Greece talking about the individualist perfection. And then at the same time, you had Confucius going, you know, going around in, in China. And, and China was completely the opposite. It's very isolated. It's a landscape of plains and low hills. And so how they were getting along and getting ahead in, in East Asia where there were farmers doing wheat growing or rice growing, which is very labor intensive, uh, or, or these huge, magnificent irrigation projects they were involved with. So to get along and get ahead in, the, in East Asia, you had to be a member of a group, and the group had to all work together to survive, so they had to keep your head down and not privilege the individual. Scholars still find some of these differences between Eastern and Western cultures. How much value is placed on the group, how much popularity amongst young people is intertwined with individual aggressiveness, and how much shyness and being reserved is celebrated. At least in the West, though, Aristotle's ideas won the day. And Storr says that has been especially true since the Industrial Revolution, when a few ordinary folks started making massive amounts of money. And it made people think, if you wanted it enough, maybe you could get it all. That's certainly what Alyssa Rosenbaum believed. Rosenbaum grew up in Russia, but she hated the collectivist ideas that came in with the Russian Revolution. And she left for America a few years later, where she spent time in Hollywood. And she got jobs as a movie extra and as a screenwriter. Then she started writing novels. And for many Americans, those books redefined their sense of self. And they start becoming successful. And, and then she takes on a pen name, and the pen name is Ayn Rand. And of course, lots of people have heard of Ayn Rand. But I, I think what lots of people don't understand is just the extraordinary influence that she's had over our culture today. Ayn Rand influenced people like Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, who met regularly with her in his younger days. And Nathaniel Brandon, the father of the self-esteem movement, a movement which author Will Storr knows well, and which he says you shouldn't really put a lot of stock in. I'm 43 now, so I'm very much a Gen Xer, and I was brought up just in the thick of this idea that, you know, if, if you had something wrong with you, if you were depressed or anxious or you were misbehaving, the answer always reduced to low self-esteem. You didn't love yourself enough. That was a problem with everybody who was, you know, had anything wrong with them. You know, you, know, you need to learn to love yourself, man. And it was only when I started researching this book that I really realised that this is actually a false idea. It's just not true when social psychologists do this research into the effects of self-esteem. It actually um, it doesn't have all these kind of amazing effects. So, so one of the things I wanted to do was explore how on earth this lie came to kind of spread around the world. And, and I discovered that actually it was literally a lie. That, that, so just in brief, the story is there's this guy, um, John Vasconcellos, who's a very powerful California politician in the 80s, but a bit of a hippie too. So he, he pitched this idea of this three-year task force to investigate 
self-esteem because he decided that really in order to become amazing and to get rid of all these problems we had like homelessness, domestic violence, gang warfare was a big problem in California at the time and, you know, mm. teenage pregnancy, there's a bit of a moral panic about. In order to kind of cure all these problems, we had to raise self-esteem. Everybody had to learn to love themselves. And of mm. course, when he announced this thing and he managed to get, you know, three quarters of a million dollars worth of funding for this thing. And when it was announced, it, it was just ridicule. Like Johnny Carson was doing stand-up routines about it. The New York Times were just completely dismissive. And Vasco's obviously furious and, and, and journalists are asking him, you know, why is everybody laughing at your idea? And he says, well, they've got low self-esteem. That was his diagnosis of the problem of all these journalists. But then three years later, he, he says, listen, you know, we, we've been looking into this for three years now. We've actually recruited you know, a raft of professors from the University of California system to do some proper hard data analysis on this and, and we found that it's true that actually self-esteem is this social vaccine and by increasing self-esteem we are going to have all these amazing effects so you know people are amazed they can't believe it but it, this story goes around the world it becomes this almost like a it goes viral in, in the sense you know in, you know oprah right. starts talking about it oprah oprah says that self-esteem is going to be the catch-all phrase of the 1990s mm-hmm. it goes everywhere and it changes the way we raised our children it changes the way we teach our children and, and I went through the, I tracked down former members of the task force and I, and I went through all their documentation, years of archives. And, and what I found was something extraordinary was that actually it was that, that Vasconcellos knew that this was untrue. He, it, was a, it was a lie. And he, and he when he told the, the world and the world's media that the science had backed up what he'd been saying, he was lying about that. And in fact, I kind of interviewed one task force member who said he was there in the room when Vasconcellos saw this data for the first time. And he said... If the legislature find out what's in these reports, we're going to lose all our funding. And he said, as soon as that happened, it all started getting swept under the carpet. And, you know, what you see in, in the psychological literature, you know, Gene Twenge very famously did all these analyses of narcissism in young people. And, you know, she's been attacked uh, by other pe- lots of people who are kind of defensive of the millennial generation for claiming this. But I spend some, quite a lot of time in the book going through her data and also the arguments of her antagonists and and i really think that she's absolutely right on this is that what you see as soon as this self-esteem idea starts becoming widespread rates in narcissism begin to wobble in young people and then in the early 90s they start going up and they carry on going up and up and up through the 90s into the 2000s and in fact there was a very recent study from the university of amsterdam a big study they actually um worked with 500 different families and they rated each family each kind of parental style and they and they, and they measured the kind of self-esteem narcissistic kind of levels in their children and what they found was that in the parents that had a, had a parental style which they described as parental overpraise, right? So they were telling their children they're amazing and special and wonderful. Uh-huh, right. They saw rates in narcissism in their children rise every six months that they went to visit. So I think it's a really powerful thing. And of course, it would be amazing if it didn't have an effect. It changed our culture, as I'm sure mm-hmm. everybody who lived through it can recognize. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Will Storr. He's the author of the book Selfie, How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. So Contrast that uh, movement of the 80s and 90s, this idea of like of self-esteem with uh, technology, because obviously people who were kids in the 80s and 90s way came way before Facebook. It was not Facebook. um, And even, you know, the title of your book is Selfie. And when people think about selfies, what do they think about? But technology and selfie sticks. Right. And things that that didn't exist before a few years ago. So and I think a lot of people would think. If they did think that, you know, this moment in time is a moment of narcissism, 
they would mm. think the reason is is because Twitter and Facebook and selfies and this and that. Do you think we're off the mark on that, or is that true too? Yeah. I, I do, because okay. I think that, that what you see very clearly is that it isn't that Twitter and, and selfie cameras that are causing these things. It's that okay. people are choosing to use these things. I mean, Silicon Valley threw up dozens of ideas a day, you could say, easily. Uh, it's the people that choose which ones work. I mean, don't forget, Twitter was conceived as a, as a service for free text messages, SMS messages. The selfie camera, when it was launched by Apple, was conceived as, a, as something to use with FaceTime. It was launched as the front-facing camera, and it was pitched as something that you can use for Skype phones or FaceTime calls. It was us, the people, that decided to use Twitter for what it became. It was us, right, the people, to, to that stand in to front use... And the selfie sticks to stand in front of the yeah. Eiffel Tower. Yeah, stuff. so Silicon Valley yeah. don't control us. We control Silicon yeah. Valley as a people. Right. We, we decide which of their ideas work and we decide how we use their ideas. I mean, they're constantly running after us trying to second guess what we want and give it to us. That's kind of how it's working. And don't forget with the timings things, you know, the self-esteem movement, I think, informed the generation of parents. And so the millennials that got the victims of all this. And so, you, you know, you do see this narcissism continuing to go up throughout, you know, into the 21st century too. So, so that self-esteem movement has a long tail. I think it's kind of, it seems to be kind of leveling off now though, the rise, but it's, you know, it's obviously higher than it was, but it stopped rising. I think, especially since the end of the financial crisis, which is quite interesting, but we, I don't think people have quite worked out why or how or what's quite going on in that data yet. So let me ask you about then the layering on of technology. And the and it really is layering because, you know, movies, which are, are certainly a big, important technology um, in the world, have been around for a hundred plus years at this point, uh, you know, TV, maybe 70 ish years in a big way, 60 years. And then obviously the Internet really has only had a real big effect maybe for 20 ish years. Do you feel like technology has changed our sense of self, our uh, push towards perfectionism? What is the impact? Yeah, so focusing on the self-esteem movement, that's, that's one effect. I think there's another two really important ones. And, of course, the major one is the economy. That's the big one. But as you point out, the other third one is the internet and it's social media. Right. So if right. you're talking about sort of rising levels of perfection, and, again, that definition of perfectionism, which is we're sensitive to signals of failure in the environment. It, it, so social media has given us lots and lots more reasons to feel like failures, especially sort of young people. So one of the fundamental ways the brain works out how we're doing in life, how successful we are, how good we should feel about ourselves, is it, is it compared? ourselves to the people around us so back again back when we were evolving we'd have been surrounded by not that many people human tribes were around 150 but those right. we'd never have been with all of those people at once would have been with our sort of close kin but today of course we're on social media and we're surrounded by you know like we, we go through instagram there's kim kardashian there's jennifer lawrence there's beyonce look there's me you know like we're you know we're all, <laughs> in, the, in the age of, kind of social media and reality sure. tv it's not like Stars like they were 100 years ago, stars are kind of in almost just like us. And the mm -hmm. kind of toxic thing about this is it's unconscious. You know, so it's, there's that. There's also the fact that psychologists call this perfectionist presentation. People deliberately put their most perfect moments from their lives onto social media to, you know, mm -hmm. to show people. And even right. though that we know consciously that that's what they're doing, and even though that we know consciously that some of these Hollywood stars will be full of plastic surgery and have zillions of stylists and probably, you know, et cetera, right. unconsciously it still hits us. It still affects us. Right. It still makes us feel bad. Right. But then there's also the wider sort of tribal stuff too. You know, we're still ineffably a tribal species. And you see social media has enabled us to be tribal in a way that we've never been able to be tribal before. You know, so tribes can connect 
and gather on Twitter, gather on Facebook. And one of the ways that kind of tribal psychology kind of triggers into something dangerous and unpleasant is with, you know, kind of moral outrage. So when we experience a member of another tribe transgressing our tribal codes, we feel moral outrage, which is this very ancient uh, you know, tribal emotion, and that motivates us to act. It motivates us to want to kind of strike out, to ostracize, to rage, to deal with that situation. So there's this huge pressure at the moment that you have to have exactly the right political views, and woe betide you if you don't. So it's yet another layer of pressure that, that is on the shoulders of people and making them feel that they have to be constantly perfect. Let me take a step back from all this because, you know, we're talking about this culture of being obsessed with the self. And I think that's in some ways not um, a view that's probably so distant from what a lot of people think about the world today. But one of the things you say that really struck me is that even though we tend to be naturally selfish, obviously we want things for ourselves and, and position for ourselves, When humans use the word good uh, to describe somebody, what they really mean is that the person is selfless. How do you reconcile that? And that, like, we want this thing, which is like we want to be at the top of the heap and whatever, but we really value people who will give something up. That's a really good question. And it goes down to our evolutionary times. For 99% of the time that we've been roaming the earth, we've not been living in these sophisticated towns and cities. We've been living in large hunter-gatherer chars that have been roaming around the earth trying to survive. Right. Life was really hard back then. And, you know, you had to police a tribe. So how did we, how did we police a tribe back then? You know, how did we mm-hmm. c- control it and make sure that people were not being uh, selfish? And, and so, you know, one of the ways that we do it was, we'd, you know, we gossip, we'd tell stories about people. And uh, a lot of those stories would revolve around uh, you know, people being selfish or selfless because the kind of uh, behavior that we would have had to have encouraged in the tribe was selfless behavior because that's the kind of behavior that would have kept the tribe going. And so selfless behavior becomes heroic behavior. Mm. You know, and I think that I make the argument that kind of all modern storytelling probably emerges from that tribal gossip because what do we mm-hmm. see over and over and over again in stories is that is that heroes behave selflessly somehow right, and villains right. behave selfishly somehow. And, right, and, right. and it's, it's almost mm-hmm. as if tri- it's stories is kind of tribal propaganda. A, a final question for you. I know you've talked about how you uh, have had perfectionist tendencies and like we all do when you said like sometimes I walk by, you know, a car in the parking lot or the window of a store and I catch my reflection and I think, hmm. How am I looking today? Not not the best, you know, or whatever, <laughs> which we all do. We all do. Um, do you feel like your perfectionist tendencies have gotten worse since writing a book about the self or they're getting a little better? No, they're getting better. And I can tell you exactly okay. why. I discovered the, the, the stories that a culture tells itself are really important. And it, the story that the, you know, this sort of neoliberal West tells itself is, 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 well, it's everywhere. You can do what you want. You can be whoever you want to you want to be. You just got to go for your dreams and you'll make it. And, 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 it's, and it's this kind of humanistic psychology idea as well of this idea of infinite potential, infinite capacity to transform into whoever, whoever we want to be. And also, you know, and it, and it produces this kind of hero idea and the hero that the neoliberal kind of economy throws up is this 20 something year old with a flat stomach and they're surrounded by friends and they're really funny and, um, you know, they go to lots of parties, <laughs> this individual. And that, that was the person right. I always wanted to be. And I always kind of right. struggled to kind of keep friends. I always felt very antisocial and, 
I had to beat myself up. I'd be like, there's something wrong with me. There's something, I'm broken in some way that I'm not this person from friends, you know. Um, and, and, then, and then you discover <laughs> the kind of what, you know, what, what psychologists have known for a long time. And, and that this idea of infinite capacity to transform is just not true. You know, so personality psychologists talk about these five levels of, on which we, our personalities kind of go backwards and forwards, the most famous of which, of course, being introverse, introversion to extroversion. Mm-hmm. And what they say is that, A, they, they are heavily biological. They're not wholly biological, but they're, they're partly a product of our genes. But most of the rest of what they are is a product of our early life experiences over which we have no control. So as soon as we're kind of in our mid-20s, we have our personality. And although it might change, it will change a bit as we go, as we go through our, our life, and it can always break if we go through a tremendously traumatic experience. This idea that we can transform who we are by sheer act of will is simply not true. And Mm. so what you discover is that this story that we're constantly told is a lie. This hero, this ideal character that we're constantly taunted with is an impossible dream and 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 actually what i discovered was was that i'm not broken there's nothing wrong with me i'm just high in i'm low in extroversion which means i'm an introvert and i'm also high in neuroticism which means that this low self-esteem thing is pretty much embedded in my head and there's not much i'm ever going to be able to do about it so you know what it's kind of depressing when you first find that out but it ends up being very liberating because it's like for the first time in my life i feel like I'm not actually broken. It's just that there are different kinds of humans and I happen to be this particular kind of human. And now I can finally, after decades of doing so, stop beating myself up for not being the person who I feel like my culture wants me to be. Will Store is the author of Selfie, How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. Will, this was a super interesting conversation. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks very much. On our website, we've got a past interview that might interest you. It's with psychologist Hazel Marcus, who has spent years studying the self in cultures across the world. That's at innovationhub.org. Some people are perfectionists and some are not. I am definitely not a perfectionist when it comes to cleaning my house, but I am a little bit more of a stickler when it comes to grammar. Eugenia Chang is a mathematician who talks with us from time to time about how math intersects with life, and she says she's definitely not a perfectionist. But she admits that she often stays up late at night working on math or playing the piano or baking French macaroons. Chang writes the Everyday Math column in the Wall Street Journal, and she's the scientist-in-residence at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and she argues that even if you're tempted to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of sleep to indulge those perfectionist tendencies, you can keep them in check. How? Chang says, just don't believe in perfection. What is perfection even. I don't think it exists. And so I don't think that we can even strive to achieve it. Or at least that's why I don't, because I don't think that perfection exists. Hmm. So where is the line? Like, how do you know how hard you should work on something and whether you should pay attention to every comma, which is something I I was worried about, you know, is is this little change worth making or is it, you know, it's not worth my time to make it? 
Oh, absolutely. And when I write slides, I make slides and I move words, point one of a point to the right, because it really makes a difference. <laughs> it does. It does right. make a difference. It makes a difference to me and how I feel. <laughs> so my mother taught me from when I was very young about the law of diminishing returns. And that really stuck with me. And I recognize that many people don't have a mother who teaches them about the law of diminishing returns when they're about six. But <laughs> I decided that the key is not just the outcome by itself, but it's the ratio of outcome to effort. So if you have to put in a lot of effort, then that makes a difference to whether you should really bother, depending on whether the outcome makes a really huge difference or not. So Mm. if the amount of effort is small, then sure. And if you get a really huge payoff for the amount of effort you're making, but at a certain point, that payoff starts getting less relative to the amount of effort that you have to make. And so the best place to stop is once you've started getting those diminishing returns. And some Sometimes it's not even just that the ratio gets smaller, it starts being negative. So one example from the kitchen is when you're making puff pastry, you fold over the pastry to make more layers of pastry. And the more layers you get, you roll them out and they're really thin and they get thinner and thinner, which makes them more delicate and more delicious. But there are diminishing returns because if you do it too many times, Mm -hmm. then you overwork the pastry and it'll become tough and it won't rise and the layers will start breaking. And that's why, if you look in most recipe books, it says to do it six times because someone has figured out <laughs> that that is when the law of diminishing returns kicks in. So then the other side of that is uh, having a minimum standard. How do you know where you're going to say, but I do want to do it six times? You know, I don't want to fold this puff pastry five times because it's not good enough in my view. Or I do want to add that comma or I do want to move that, you know, word 0.1 percent on the slide. How do you know? <laughs> That is where I sometimes get into trouble because I do have quite high minimum standards that are acceptable to me. And so I have to at least keep going until I've reached that minimum standard. And then once I get there, I will often be satisfied much earlier than a perfectionist would because I reckon I have met that minimum standard. And this is definitely true when I'm doing something like writing a first draft Mm -hmm. of an article or a book. Then I allow myself very low minimum standards just to get it done. And so I don't I don't get writer's block the first time around because I'm not trying to aim for perfection. I'm just aiming to get something down. And I do this in research with a colleague of mine as well. We often say to ourselves, we're just going to do something, anything, (laughs) doesn't matter. And once we've released ourselves from that minimum standard for the first time through, then that just sets ourselves free. It's when in the final stages where the diminishing returns can be really tricky. And then some people keep working all the way until the deadline because they think that will give us the best outcome. But I think things like stress and pressure start mounting up. And then there's that thing where when you go through an article and correct typos, you're kind of doomed to insert some as well. And at a certain point, are you inserting more typos than you're correcting? (laughs) That can happen. I'll tell you what really works against you in that idea, which I think is a really good one of not worrying about the first draft and just saying, like, I'm just going to get my ideas down and not worry about the little things. Things like spell check and grammar check, which I have to remember to turn off, but I don't do. But it's very annoying to see these like red underlines and I want to go and address them. Mm hmm. I always turn those off because I can't stand them. And Smart. also, I, I quite often type with my eyes closed, which helps because otherwise I will just keep <laughs> doing a running commentary on what I'm typing. I'm going to start doing that and just see 
We'll see what my colleagues think of what I produce. Just start <laughs> typing with my eyes closed and see what comes out. Um, when you give other people advice for thinking about perfectionism, what do you say to them? Well, sometimes I actually really like passing on the advice of my nephew, who is now eight years old. And when he was seven, he made a little motivational video for his little brother who was going into kindergarten. And he said this amazingly wise thing. He said that if you do the wrong thing, then don't worry about trying to be perfect. He said, as long as you have fun and do your best, then you did perfect. And I often think about that, and I think about that a lot in the music salon that I run in downtown Chicago called the Liederstube, where we present classical music in a much more informal and spontaneous setting than it usually is. So the mm. aim is to to break down barriers around it so that people can enjoy classical music mm. informally, but it's also to help musicians free themselves of that awful pressure of being on stage and trying to be perfect. And so we have a really fantastic ratio of outcome to effort because mm. we make practically no effort whatsoever. <laughs> we don't rehearse, we don't prepare, and we make sure everybody has had plenty to, you know, imbibe so that everyone is suitably relaxed. And then we just play things spontaneously. And we so we've completely released ourselves. But the outcome, it's not perfect in the sense of playing all the right notes. It's not perfect in the sense of being correct all the time. But in a way, it's perfect because we tried our best and we had fun. And we've right. shared music with people. And we have released ourselves from that pressure of being under the spotlight. We're sharing music, we're enjoying ourselves. And the outcome to effort ratio is really excellent. Right. I love that. Eugenia Chang is the author of Beyond Infinity, and she's a columnist for The Wall Street Journal. Eugenia, thanks so much. Thank you. On our website, we've got another conversation with Eugenia Chang about averages. When should you use means versus medians? That's all at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also have production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.